Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester, here with Samaya Nassim, and this is Reading Woman, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And this is episode 76, where we're talking about The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing by Mira Jacob and Are Women on the Ground, edited by Zara Hankir. You can find a complete transcript and a list of all the books mentioned today linked in our show notes. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. So this month's theme is dualities. And Samaya, this was one of your picks for a theme this year. Yeah, so our theme this month is dualities. And I came up with this theme when I was thinking about my own experiences growing up as uh, the child of expatriates. So that immigrant experience definitely influenced the way that I have formed my identity. And, you know, as we've been discussing the books and like just in general, you know, going deeper into this theme, we have expanded it beyond the immigrant experience to really be more inclusive of cross-cultural experiences in general. So we will be looking at uh, Middle Eastern and South Asian narratives that deal with this in some form. The simplest example, I think, from our own lives would be how we seem to be entirely different selves when we're with our family rather than when when we're with our friends. So what we're looking at is something we're all going through in some small or big way, regardless of where you live whether it's because you're an immigrant or an expatriate or because you've been influenced by subcultures in your community or simply choose to live life differently compared to your family or community. And aside from this, we're also looking at how, you know, we can break down stereotypes by opening up to more intercultural dialogues. And I think both of our discussion books today, they feature different aspects of our theme today because we have a family narrative where we're like part of the family almost as the novel goes on. And then we also have an anthology of different Arab women from around the world uh, reporting from different parts of the Arab world. And you have women who report from multiple countries or they're immigrants reporting to a different country that they're not from. They're just a great well-rounded selection today for sure. Yeah, so both the books that we are discussing are dealing with cultures and subcultures in some some way. And they're also looking at these stories, at these narratives through a lens that is meant to create a better understanding of how we experience the world, especially in the Middle East. And if you are an immigrant family. Yeah, so I guess we should get started. Uh, Samaya, do you want to talk about uh, your discussion pick? Right. So my discussion pick is The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing by Mira Jacob. So this is the story of the Epen family. Uh, They're an Indian-American family who uh, relocated to Albuquerque, New Mexico from India. We basically look at what happens to this family when their daughter Amina is contacted by her mom, who tells her that, hey, your dad is going through something and, you know, like there might be something wrong with him. So I think you should come back come back to Albuquerque. And so Amina makes her way back to her family. And and this is where memory comes in. And also like they start to think about things that have happened in their past that has affected the family, whether it's, you know, profound grief experienced or just in general things that are unsettled between the members. It's a massive, massive novel. It's over 500 pages and it's a delight to read because we really get into the lives of these characters and look at how they're navigating their world, um, especially in relation to each other. I don't know, when you when you picked this book, I just found that, that I didn't know what to expect, but I was so fascinated by the fact that this is 
a family narrative and you have so many different perspectives and how that unfolds throughout the novel. And you think the story is going to go one way, but it, it doesn't. It goes a totally different way, which is very exciting and just a joy to read in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like I really loved the direction that the story took because it surprised me. And, um, you know, and, and the way I, I wish I could say more, but the way that certain elements, uh, are brought to the, to the front, you know, they make us question the way that we perceive the world. And, you know, you, you start to question like, Hey, which, which character in this story is the right one? Like whose reality, whose truth is the, is the one that I should be considering the, the accurate one, you know, like it's really intense. It's, it's amazing the way that Jacob has like crafted this story that's also about family, but it's also about life. And, you know, it's, it's about people and it goes beyond these characters, it goes beyond their world that they have created. It's, it's beautiful. It's, it's done so well. You picked this book because of the fact that, you know, obviously Amna comes from an immigrant family and she's experiencing that and being a second generation, her perspective is different. Uh, but you've mentioned several times that you find this different than the mainstream immigrant narrative. How so and what about that like fascinates you or drew you in? I, I felt like there, there are definitely elements in this book, especially at the start of the novel, that are very strongly uh you know, resonant of the immigrant experience that we usually read about, especially the Indian American immigrant experience. So at the start of the novel, we're taken uh, to India, where Thomas and Kamla are visiting his family. And over, when, they're th when they're visiting India, we see the anxiety that comes with mi migration. You know, Kamla wishes that she could go back to India, that she could you know, live there again because she really misses it. But Thomas is reluctant because he prefers his new life in America. He's drawn to the opportunities there. And what I found interesting is that as the story progresses, the hold that India has on the family slackens because of certain things that happen and their connection is also severed in a way. And it takes a new shape. And that's at the heart of the mystery in this book because there's there is a mystery there. You know, like all good family drama, there is something that is unanswered. And in this book, I felt like that was the way that this, the way that the story moved was from this immigrant story into a proper family mystery drama. Yeah, and we talked about this earlier uh, in our previous episode, but the narrative flips back and forth between um, when Amina is a teenager with her older brother and her parents, and then to when she is, I think, 29 in the like present-day narrative in 1998. And you that adds to the mystery because you have this cliffhanger, and then you move back to the present, and then you go back in the past. And this very well-structured story just adds to the mystery and the drama and trying to figure out what's going on. And I will say like, you know, this is a hefty book, but it didn't feel that long and you like fly through it. It almost reads like a mystery novel or something like that. It does. And there's this breezy quality to the, to the writing style as well. And what I found amazing is how when we are moving back and forth, you know, between these time periods, we're also looking at the situations and choices that the characters are faced with. And, you know, when you jump forward, you're like, okay, so 
you know, this is what that character decided or like, OK, this explains that other thing. It's just it's just really interesting the way that, you know, we just view how these characters are navigating their life and the mystery builds at the same time. So we are getting answers, but we're also getting a lot of questions. I think one of the most fascinating things about this book for me is as someone who's read five billion novels about family, about the young person having to go off to find themselves, to leave home to find themselves. With this book, Amna is returning to her parents' house. She's returning to home to find herself. Or she's uh, at a really difficult point in her life, and I won't say why because of spoilers, but she's going through a lot. And so she's a photographer. She finds herself being a wedding photographer because she just is at a rough place in her career. And this is how she can make money. And she goes home and she reconnects with her parents and with her culture and different things happen. And there's things in the family's past that they haven't really ever addressed or talked about. And she finds more of herself and who she is by going back home. And to me, this was really refreshing because I feel like oftentimes there's this narrative that you have to leave your family to discover who you are. But that's only for some people as opposed to other people who return back home and discover who they are, Um, which is really interesting to see in a novel like this. Yeah, and I felt like the relationship that she has with her parents also, you know, it's 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 done so beautifully, especially the relationship that she has with her father. And one thing that I notice often in immigrant narratives is how the how the people who move to it the new the new country which is often the parents they are there to build a new life and they work hard and they have to survive in this new place. But the children who come after the the first generation they have they come into the settled life, you know, where they have the space to pursue their passions and they may not be facing the same pressures to survive because their parents have already done it for them in a way. So I feel like that journey that Amina is going through is also a journey of self-actualization because this is also reflected in how she is able to pursue a passion. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of discussion about her parents moving to the United States and how her mother didn't want to move to the United States. I saw a post somewhere the other day talking about how feeling restless in your very safe, comfortable environment where you do have the ability to pursue your passion and feeling uncomfortable and wanting to leave is a privilege in and of itself because a lot of immigrant parents move to different countries to try to provide that for their children. So their children have a privilege that they, the parents, did not have per se. And I thought that this was so interesting because her dad moved away to become a brain surgeon, and which wasn't available to him in, in uh, India. And he moves there. And then Amina is a photographer, and this artist, and does all these things. And just seeing that dynamic of the pressure that she received to do well because her parents sacrificed so much, but wanting to pursue art. And I don't know, it was a really interesting dynamic that I really appreciated seeing on the page. Definitely. And that is something that, you know, tends to happen in immigrant families, I've noticed. The same case is with my family, like my parents, you know, they worked hard all their life. They struggled so much to give us a, you know, a stable environment. And that environment has allowed us to pursue our passions and to pursue, you know, what our heart desires, as opposed to looking for a job that pays the bills that, 
adds to that stability. So Amina is definitely also beginning this process of self-actualization in a way because she is, you know, especially with her photography career, she is in, in a moment of crisis. And I found that very intriguing that she is internally conflicted about her photography because of this one particular picture. And it's amazing to me how that one moment can change so much in her life. I love her interactions with her parents uh, because her parents, like we talked about last time, her parents are my yes. favorite characters. <laughs> so Thomas and Kamala are just a pair. Oh, my word. And so like Thomas makes these weird inventions like raccooning. And he has this like in his backyard, he has like this giant slingshot and they put rotten vegetables <laughs> from Kamala's garden in it. And then they try to shoot raccoons with it. And <laughs> I actually thought that was a thing in America. Like I, <laughs> I didn't know that he invented this. I was like, "Whoa, people do this!" <laughs> but then I find out that it's you know like his brilliant mind at work. Yeah, I I mean I've heard of people shooting raccoons and possums and other you know rural backyard pests with BB guns that aren't fatal and stuff like that. But like. I've never heard of someone have building a giant slingshot just for shooting raccoons that come and get in the garbage, you know? And I feel like as someone from Appalachia, this is a big deal. But yeah, and the way that he builds inventions and we learn why he's been become an inventor and different things and puddles around the house or whatever. And then Kamala has this garden that she works in. And it's really interesting considering the title. Yeah which is a sleepwalker's guide to dancing, how their two hobbies come to influence each other. And I don't want to say anything else because of spoilers. So I apologize to our listeners, but it's just really well done. And you, you know, as a reader, I always sit around waiting for the title to become, you know, apparent why the author chose that. And uh, I, I feel like that was a great piece of the, this family's story that came into place. Uh, yeah. And one thing that I would say to people who are planning to read this is to think about how each character is sleepwalking or like how they are, uh, their relationship to sleep, maybe like think about that. But I think the idea here could be that, you know, they are situated in in a reality where they don't always know how to navigate it. And that's the sleepwalking, the family, when they work together and, you know, when they combine these elements of sleepwalking and the dancing, they're basically like learning how to navigate life together. And I think that's such a wonderful thing. It's lovely. I feel like one timeline of the book is like the family falling apart and the other timeline is them coming back together. And there's a beautiful symmetry in that, in the way that the book is structured and how the dynamics are structured and the characterization and just the things that are left undone in one timeline are made better almost or fixed or on their way to being fixed in the second timeline and how that's beautifully structured and timed so that when we as readers are feeling emotionally distraught, like the world will never be okay again. You have these scenes where like a parent will come and talk to Amina and be like, it's okay. And you feel that fatherly affection and just the emotional journey is very well timed out. I listened to this on audio and Mira Jacob reads it herself and she does accents for Kamala and Thomas and just Kamala especially because she has the best dialogue 
Yes, she does. She is brilliant. She is brilliant. And I know that I've read this book twice already, but I will be willing to listen to it on audiobook just for that effect uh, of listening to that accent. And it is fabulous. Oh, my word. So sometimes, like, I really don't like reading pages of dialogue. But with this book, I was just riveted because there's, like, this back and forth. And you can see this family that knows each other so well and all these different things. Like, there is a scene where Amina's brother has been out making out with this girl. And he arrives (laughs) at the table, like, with his hair ruffled and, like, a hickey on his neck. And his mom sees it and thinks he's been beaten up by boys and um is like no mom it's a girl and she's like he's been beaten up by a girl <laughs> oh that's hilarious i loved that scene and just the awkwardness of you know like being a teenager and having parents who are so into your life like who are always there and you know who are always keeping an eye on you that's it's it's so funny i i love that about this book i love that it, it, it is intense it is emotional but at the same time, it's funny. It's it's got these moments, and that's the that's the perfect kind of family family book because that is what every family is like. I mean, we know everything about each other. We make fun of each other, but and we torment each other. And this book captures that so perfectly. And you know, I want to go back to what you said about the two timelines where you one is you know where the family sort of fallen apart, and the other one is where they're coming back together. And I feel like. You know, it makes me think about the family unit as something that is actually organic, as something that is living in itself. And, you know, as time passes, we grow as a family as well. And that dynamic is captured so beautifully in this book. It, it is. And I really appreciate what you said about it being organic and, and it growing, whether like through marriages or through adoption or through various means that you can have also a chosen family, the family unit just changes over time and then it might suffer loss and have to recover. And that's really like the story that we're getting in this book is how this family unit has loss and gains and and going back and forth in between that. Exactly. And, you know, with this family in particular, I mean, what happens when you migrate to a new place and the people that you left behind, you lose touch with them? Like what happens when there's no one that you can go back to? You know, when the home that you've chosen now is the only one that you have left. So I think the Epens, you know, they're the kind of immigrant family that fits into this idea. And this does not mean that they're adrift or that they're without a community because they have developed new bonds in America and they have a community that supports them. So I feel like even though they're sort of disconnected from India, they have a whole new life here. And that has been possible because when you are in a new country you form family in a different way like the dynamic is just a bit different you don't have the same prejudices that you might have back home you know you don't have the same things that people think about each other the same judgments I remember there's this part in in the novel where I think Thomas remarks that you know we were able to get close to this family because when we met each other in this new new place we immediately were drawn to each other and we connected we didn't think about where do you come from and which caste or which like place in India you come from, because there's also that duality that is slightly represented in this book, is how even within India, you have like whole cultures that are so different from each other, you know, and this is represented when uh, Kamala talks about food, when she talks about South Indian food and how it's like so much better than what you find in North India. (laughs) 
So coming back to the character of Kamala, I love her because she creates her own truth. And through her character, we do see one of the main themes in this book, which is, you know, the war between faith, belief and science and rational thinking. Uh, I feel like these polarizing perspectives are so are placed so close together in this book that it makes us stop and wonder what really is the truth. I mean, you have Thomas, who is a doctor. He's a rational man. He's a man of science. But then, you know, his wife, Kamala, is a woman who's driven by her faith and belief in the unseen. You know, she's brilliant because she seems to be creating her own reality on a daily basis, and she holds her beliefs very close to her heart. I feel like we're constantly faced with a question of whether what's happening is a result of something that is supernatural or if it has a rational explanation. And I feel like this speaks to the to the idea of dualities again, because I want to give the example of my mom. I feel like there's this whole generation of women out there who have faith in both religion and science, you know, and they these women appeared when, you know, education became more common for women. So these are women who believe in superstitions scientifically. And I mean, my mom... My mom is a woman of faith who uses theories of quantum physics to talk about souls, consciousness, and the afterlife, uh, about how our souls move through time and space. So I think it's really interesting that such warring ideologies can actually coexist in a person, sometimes strengthening one, uh, sometimes one strengthening the other. So this is definitely one thing that the novel made me think about is how we perceive the world around us based on, you know, what we believe in. I, I found that very interesting as well, because we mentioned about the differences of names last time, and Thomas is a Christian name, and Kamala is a Hindu name, and I just looked it up, and Kamala means lotus or pale red in Sanskrit. It's also another name for the Hindu goddess Lakshmi, and then Thomas, as we know, is one of the 12 disciples, and is doubting Thomas. Uh, and he is is kind of synonymous when he appears in any sort of w- whatever. He's always the one of the voice of doubt of faith. And then you have someone who is Kamala who believes wholeheartedly in these things. And I felt like the dynamics of them was very interesting considering the names and how the different names of the family came from different parts of different faiths and how that appeared together in this family because during times of stress, Kamala will talk about, you know, it'll have these scenes where she's listening to like preachers on the TV or on the radio and yelling out random parts of scripture or whatever. And I found that really interesting because all of the family just accepts that's how Kamala is. Like, that's just who she is. And sometimes they might roll their eyes as teenagers, but I found that very interesting, the family dynamics in regards that they almost all represent different types of faith that exist in a single space. And I thought that was very interesting of her to do. Exactly. Like, I I really like that observation. And I feel like, you know, Kamala is constantly, like, shouting out these reaffirmations into the universe because she's just, she's a badass lady. That one. She she is so cool. (laughs) I wish I could meet her in real life, I swear. (laughs) She would be a formidable force. That is for sure. Well, I feel like we have talked about 
this book as much as we can without giving spoilers. But if you all listeners have read this book, definitely send us a message. We have way more to talk about if we talk about spoilers. So we are all here for spoilery filled conversations. Um, This would be a good time to also mention we have a Goodreads group and we also talk about spoilery sections over on our message boards there. So if you're listening to this and would like to discuss The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing or the next book we're going to talk about, Our Women on the Ground, definitely head over there and that will be linked in our show notes. You can also message me on Instagram, which is at Books, if you would like to talk to me about this amazing novel. (laughs) So that was The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing by Mira Jacob. We'll be back with our second discussion pick after a word from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is the Reading Women Patreon page. This podcast is supported by our patrons who make this podcast possible. One of the things that our patrons make possible is our transcription. So earlier this year, we strove to have all of our podcasts transcribed so that it makes the podcast more accessible. We know that many of our listeners like to follow along with the transcript just to help them as they're listening to what we're recommending and what's going on in the podcast. And so it's something that's very expensive to do. But this is also something that we have had requested very, very often. So we love to have it available for our listeners. So to help continue make this podcast the most accessible that we can make it, we really appreciate our patrons. So if you would like to support that and help us keep transcriptions available for the episodes that we have here on Reading Women, you can check out our Patreon page, which will be linked in our show notes, or you can just go to Patreon and search Reading Women. And a special thank you to all of you who already are patrons of this podcast and help continue to make the Reading Women podcast great. So Kendra, do you want to tell us about your discussion pick? Yes. Uh, my discussion pick is Our Women on the Ground, Essays by Arab Women Reporting from the Arab World, edited by Zara Hankir. So this book is about Arab women reporting from the Arab world, which I have never read an anthology like this. Have you read one before, Samaya? No, I haven't, to be honest. And I feel like in general, I have not read enough uh, material from Arab women reporting you know, on Middle Eastern issues in general, because I feel like we're constantly fed the Western perspective of things. So we don't really get to see the reality from the perspective of women who are actually living there or who have actually, you know, who hail from these parts. Yes. And we were were talking before you recording how I get into arguments with people a lot about feminism, which surprises no one, Um, (laughs) but also about representation of different women and religious women of different kinds and their lives. But I feel like it's something that we as Western, particularly white Americans, just need to learn more about and educate ourselves and, and learn more about the Arab world and to see all of these women doing all of these amazing things. If we keep getting distracted by these stereotypes, we're going to talk more about that than we are actually the work the women are doing, which is a huge hindrance to these women getting their messages out into the world. Yeah, no, I feel like when people are so obsessed and overwhelmed by the idea of Arab women being oppressed, they are definitely neglecting what we actually have to say about these issues. And uh, it's, it's a big loss because, you know, what we've seen from these essays is that Arab women and women in the Middle East in general have access to spaces that men don't. 
when you read the reports written by these women, you're going to get a perspective that you're not going to get anywhere else. And that's huge, especially for for a region like the Middle East, where you have so many different kinds of conflicts that aren't properly reported. Exactly. Uh, so we thought a good way to get into this uh, anthology would be to look at the introduction and see what the editor had to say about putting this anthology together um, and her thoughts behind it. So in the introduction, uh, the editor of this uh, anthology, Zahra Hankir, basically writes about the the multiple levels on which Arab women are misunderstood and the challenges that they face simply by being women who are reporting in the Middle East. And one section in this introduction that stands out to me is when she writes the following. Arab women are indeed misunderstood on multiple levels and by multiple groups. On one hand, an Arab woman may be victimized or pitied by outsiders who think her to be submissive, oppressed, or subjugated. She is occasionally boxed into one identity, whereby, for example, her Arab identity is incorrectly conflated with a Muslim one, and she is frequently exoticized or superficially celebrated. On the other hand, an outspoken Arab woman is sometimes deemed improper or an anomaly by both outsiders and the society around her. Professionally, she might be considered less of a threat, than her male peers or not taken seriously. And she is sometimes actively silenced or passively unheard. So that that's where the quote ends. I feel like this is such a powerful observation about the struggles or the challenges that are faced by these Sahafias, which is a word for Arab women reporters or women reporters. I feel like really encapsulates a lot of the the stereotypes and the you know preconceived notions that people have about Arab women, um, and how she pointed out that not all Arab women are Muslim, as well, and how people falsely conflate those two identities. And I thought that was just such an, an important point to make because we like to throw Arab women all in one basket, as it were, and we don't notice, let alone celebrate the diversity, the wonderful diversity that is there, um, that is represented so well in this collection. Definitely, because we do have that, you know, this major stereotype that anyone who's an Arab woman is a Muslim one. Yes. And when I read anthologies, I'm always really interested in why the author, from their perspective, wanted to create a collection of different writers, in this case, uh, Arab women writers. And she says on the last paragraph of her introduction, um, she says, I created this long overdue anthology because it's a book I desperately wanted to see on bookshelves everywhere. One that brings attention to underreported tales and the women who tell them. Arab and Middle Eastern women aren't heard enough in this space, but they're living and breathing the region, reporting on it from the front lines of Sanaz and Mosul and from Riyadh and Cairo, even from their living rooms in Raqqa. These are our women on the ground. I invite you all to listen to what they have to say. They may surprise you. End quote. And I read that paragraph and it just like hit me in the chest. Like all of these things are true. We don't listen enough to Arab women about their opinions about their own countries or the countries from which they are reporting. And I felt like I, I knew from that paragraph that this collection would be one of the best anthologies I've read this year. Um, and that's so true. It is it is fabulous. And so we've picked a selection of essays from the collection. We'd love to talk about all of them. Obviously, we do not have time to do that today. <laughs> 
I wish we could I wish we could talk about all of them because I feel like they're all so unique in in the issues that they cover and also the way that these writers are bringing their their own personal experiences and you know they're sharing personal moments that are that is shedding light on what it is like to survive and to be the one to survive when you are in in a situation that is often so horrible. Uh, the first essay we're going to look at is The Woman Question. I believe this is the first essay in the collection. Yeah, so this is the one by Hannah Allum. So if you hear pages in the background, that's because we have ours open and we both have very heavily annotated, and in my case, rainbow flagged copies, um, much loved. Definitely. <laughs> I always love to see a good annotated book. It just shows you the love that went into it. love and the intelligence in this case. Like these women have written so brilliantly, you know, that I I kept underlining so many things until I reached a point where I was like, hey, maybe I should stop because it's going to be underlines everywhere. Or you underline <laughs> like the entire essay. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I've done that <laughs> once uh, when I was reading another essay collection by Muslim women. So yeah, we should definitely read more of these books. So The Woman Question by Hannah Alam is the first essay in this collection, in fact, and it comes under the section titled Remembrances. Alam writes about reporting on Iraq as a woman and the the powerful and personal experiences that she's had with Iraqi women. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, when it comes to survival, women are the thing that keeps the family together. They're the ones that find food. They're the ones that find shelter and all of these different things to keep the family unit together. Oftentimes, while the men in their life are off fighting a war or, you know, going off doing something else, they're the ones that, that stay with you know, the family unit. And I felt like this essay in particular talked about the everyday struggles of women living in a very um, difficult environment and what they do to survive and find and the resilience and strength in that. And I think that's a really important thing to note when we're looking at the news and thinking of these things. Definitely. And especially the way that these women are helping life to go on. You know, I mean, I remember there's this one part in this essay where she mentions of an Iraqi woman named Salima. And, you know, this woman is distraught because she is worried about all the young boys, all the men who are on the front lines who are casualties of this war. But at the same time, she has empathy for the the other side and she she actually asks like what about the poor american boys out there don't they have don't they also have mothers who want them home and i feel like when you read this essay you realize that there's a lot a lot going on that people don't realize and these women are strong and they are strong and hopeful despite what they're being faced with and at the same time they have empathy even for someone that they should consider their enemy there's a section on page 12 that um, really i feel like captures the essence of what the author of this essay is trying to convey and it says i saw again and again in the women i met in the decade i covered iraq the women at the shrine that bloody summer the women on staff in our baghdad bureau the mothers and sisters and aunties who quietly fought to retain a measure of humanity on the margins of a grinding war their experiences were woven into the stories i filed but i never wrote the truth as plainly as this Every time a rock began to unravel, it was the women who worked the hardest to stitch it back together. That is so true. 
I mean, this is something that definitely stands out is the Iraqi women's strength, their empathy and determination in the face of something that is so horrible and devastating. And, you know, one of the other things that this essay made me think about is gendered spaces. You know, there's definitely no doubt that in most places around the world, women can't move around in the way that men can. I mean, regardless of whether you are in the Middle East or in in the West. But what's interesting to me, and this is something that Alam actually highlights in this essay, is that there are also female spaces that men don't have access to. And this is something the anthology over and over is telling us about. There is a lot that happens in these spaces. And, you know, the women in this uh, in this book have written a perspective that was afforded to them because of their gender and also because the spaces their gender allowed them access into. So I feel like one thing that's a bit problematic to me is that we don't consider female spaces superior. So we don't see it as a loss for men to not have access to them. And these narratives definitely challenge that idea. Yes. And and the strength of that, of having when, when there's a war and the men are killed, it's the women who are left to tell the story. And so if you're a woman, you have access to women's spaces, you hear those stories more readily than if you were a man and not able to enter those spaces. And I found that really interesting and in how a lot of the authors touched on that theme throughout the anthology was just, I mean, it really hit the home, why these women are so good at the job that they do, really. That is true. And, you know, one interesting observation that Allah makes at the start is how reporting on Iraq from through the eyes of women is actually more representative of the population as a whole because so many men have died. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was a really sobering fact to read in, in the context of these essays. One of the other essays that, Kendra, you and I both wanted to discuss was Just Stop by Iman Hilal. Iman Hilal is a photojournalist from Egypt, and she basically writes about what it was like to be a woman reporting as a photojournalist, a, a profession that is so male-dominated that her own colleagues don't consider her qualified enough to pursue it just on the basis of her gender. So this was definitely an essay that I feel like everyone needs to read because it really exposes the reality of what it's like to be a woman in a space that is so masculine and, you know, so male dominated that it simply becomes unsafe for a a person because of who, because of what their gender is. So I feel like Just Stop was definitely an essay that everyone needs to read, like especially men need to read because it clearly captures the anxiety of being a woman in the Middle East. Yeah. And she talks about being, you know, a photojournalist during like protests and violent times and capturing the violence and hostility towards women in these public spaces. And so the title of the essay comes from her photography project called Just Stop. And it's about sexual harassment in Egypt. And it it's like, you know, capturing the sexual harassment that women experience that she has seen. So there's a photo of a woman trying to get on public transportation. There's just a bunch, bunch of men just staring her as she's standing on the side. There's men making lewd gestures and, and different things at her. She did that to have evidence because when she would talk to people about this, people wouldn't believe her that it happened. So she actually has evidence. And I feel like that combined with her excellent reporting through several different 
you know, historic moments in Egypt that we've had in the last decade just really goes to illustrate how one, she is good at her job, but two, how as a woman, she brings a important and unique perspective to the news in that way. Definitely. I mean, she's helping create awareness. And also, I feel like she has so many challenges that she's facing, uh, that she's facing because of, you know, the profession that she's chosen, a profession that is male dominated and she's being she's constantly being questioned and judged and a lot of this judgment comes from her own family and the the people that she's working with who are supposed to be professionals and one thing that really highlights the enormity of what what she goes through is when she's on assignment in a in a foreign country this is the first time that she's left Egypt and the the colleague that she meets there behaves inappropriately with her. So she endures that and she keeps it to herself because she actually feels that if she talks about it, it will be another reason for people to tell her that this is not the right profession for women. I feel like we are seeing here how fighting patriarchy sometimes means that you're carrying burdens by yourself that no person should have to only because, you know, like you're you're dealing with it alone because talking about it could, you know, take you 10 steps backwards instead of forwards. So what she's dealing with alone is what she's doing for other women. Like she's is making sure that, you know, there's a path for other women to actually come into this profession and to to share their perspectives. And that is so important. I definitely feel like she's a pioneer in a way for a women journalist in her time and, and place. Um, and she talks about like how on page like 118, how she felt of deep responsibility to talk about the news in her country. She says, but I was not scared. I felt it was my duty to tell the truth for my country. I had to challenge the system that would have preferred me to be holed up at home. I was also overwhelmed by the feeling of awe and admiration. I was proud of everyone who participated in the protests that day. They too had risked their lives. And just that responsibility and how the stakes are so much higher for her to be a photojournalist than those of us who do not have countries that are experienced war or violent protests or things like that. And I think it's important her risks be acknowledged that she is doing such a big risk. She is fighting back and how it's such a dangerous place for her to be in. But she's doing this because she feels it is her responsibility to do so. And I'm just in awe of she, she and all of the other women in this collection that are doing very similar things. One of the reasons that we're looking at these two essays in particular is because both of them look at gendered spaces. In Just Stop by Iman Hilal, we are looking at male-dominated spaces that are most oftentimes unsafe for women, particularly what we're seeing in what we're seeing through Hilal's perspective. And in The Woman Question by Hannah Alam, we're looking at female spaces that are, you know, giving women access to stories that men don't have access to. So it's an interesting parallel to consider because it gives us a better idea about what it is like to be a woman reporting from the ground. Definitely. And so obviously, please, everyone, go pick up this copy of Our Women on the Ground. Um, I would love to see it all over Bookstagram and a lot of different places. Definitely share with us your favorite essays and anything like that. We would love to hear about it. Yeah, and I feel like it's it's important to note that you should take your time reading this. And if you're going to read at least one book from the Middle East, make it this one because it's going to introduce to introduce you to a lot of voices that need to be heard. 
Yeah, it is is definitely one of the best anthologies I've read. I've read this year. It is absolutely fabulous. So that is Our Women on the Ground. And that is edited by Zara Hunkier. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't yet, please leave us a review in your podcast app of choice. And thanks to all of you who have already done that. And many thanks to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. To subscribe to our newsletter or to learn more about becoming one of our patrons, visit us at readingwomenpodcast.com. Join us next time when we'll be talking about honorable mentions for the Reading Women Award. In the meantime, you can find Reading Women on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at Katie Winchester and me on Instagram at sumaya.books. Thanks for listening to Reading Women. Reading Women.